We would like to welcome you to Getting in the Word with Pastor Stuart Guthrie. Pastor Stuart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch, South Carolina, and he will be teaching through a series on Titus. We hope that you will join us as we begin Getting in the Word. Here's Pastor Stuart. Well, it has been said the Great Wall of China was so wide and so tall that no one could ever get through its build-up. It would be unable to be breached from above and through or even below. Women, children, and men lived in the safety, having no fear or worries that anyone would ever get to them. Because they built the wall so high, no one could go over. And because they built it so deep and so thick, no one could tunnel through it or go through it. They built this gigantic wall that still exists today. The people of China sat behind its walls feeling their future was secure. But something happened interestingly in the first 100 years. Can you believe that even though they had the protection of the height, the width, and the depth, that no one could evade them from above, through, or below, that within the first three years, China was invaded three times. Within the first 100 years, China was invaded three times. I mean, if the height was their protection against the folks coming over, and the width and the depth was their protection against the folks coming underneath or through, how in the world were they invaded? Each time China was invaded, the enemy came through a gate left open. While the people sat comfortably behind the wall, they failed to teach their children integrity. They failed to teach the people patriotism. And so they sold out to the enemy. The enemy evaded their land through the gates. Let me say this in relation to the church. We could have the largest church. We could have the fullest church. We could have the largest amount of staff, the greatest weekly annual budget as well. But if we can't trust the gatekeepers, we, like them, are helpless. Listen, this section for which we are going to study on the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, deal with biblical leadership. Listen, biblical leadership is the foundation for a healthy church. The church, listen, is only as strong as its pastors, its elders, and its overseers. All of which refer to the same office, by the way. That will be important to understand as we walk through this book strategically, verse by verse. There are two terms that I think we need to define this morning as we dive into our text that are absolutely uh, necessary. and We need no confusion as we approach them to, to what we're referring to when we say the word elder overseer. The word elder is the most commonly used term in the New Testament for leaders in the church. The early church adopted the term elder to refer to its church leaders. 
The elders in the New Testament, like those in the Old Testament, were expected to make judgments, to give direction to the congregation, to fulfill different functions, including things like directing the church, preaching and teaching and prayer. A matter of fact, almost from the birth of the church, there were elders in the office of leadership. So when you see the word elder slash overseer, which is right off in the first few verses that we'll look at today, we need to understand these two terms are dealing with the same person, the same leader. It's here in the book of Titus where Paul has consistently referred to elders slash overseers as leaders in the church. He has presently pointed out the standards that they must follow as regards to the qualified elder. But not only are these men called to meet the qualifications, they are also called to stand up and to protect the household of God. Paul, interestingly, here uses the term elder, which in the Greek is presbyteros, in verse 5, and then turns around in verse uh, 7 and uses the Greek word episkopos, which means overseer, a bishop. If you're reading from the King James Version, it would say bishop. If you're reading from the New American Standard, it would say overseer. But the reality is, is pastor, elder, overseer, bishop all mean the same thing in the New Testament. So the elders are the gatekeepers. They are to protect the flock, to shepherd the flock of God. And thus we can say, foundationally speaking, leadership is one of the most important aspects to a healthy church. That's why it says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. So understanding that is key. So if you will, let's turn to Titus chapter 1 and let us begin by reading verses 5 to 9. He says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely... If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of indecent behavior or rebellion. For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's servant or steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable. Loving what is good, self-controlled, righteous, holy, disciplined, holding firmly to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. So let's begin this morning by looking at three things that I believe will help us understand as we navigate through these difficult Verses and how they help us relate to a healthy church. First, I want you to see the command. Secondly, I want you to see the criteria. And thirdly, I want you to see the cause. The first thing I want us to consider is the command. The text reads, For this reason I left you in Crete, 
that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Paul begins right away expressing to Titus the reason he was left in Crete. Now I think we first need to see the fact and make the observation that Titus was left in Crete. This would preassume that Titus and Paul worked in ministry together there on the island of Crete where Paul had to leave, but he left Crete. They left Titus there on the island of Crete to set in order what remains. It seems that the church in Crete, whatever time was spent there with Paul, was not developed completely and had not been fully put in order. And so there were some things that needed to be made straight. Now, the Greek word here, epi de ortho, it, it, it means to set in order what is com comprised of two prepositions, epi and dia, through and upon. And there, those two prepositions are added to the Greek word ortho, where we derive our English word orthodontist. And the, uh, the, the, what an orthodontist does is he takes something that's crooked and he manipulates it and he makes it right. He corrects what is wrong. And so the first order of service that's given to Titus by the uh, Apostle Paul was to set in order what remains, to make straight what was not. And it seems that the very first task that Paul commanded Titus is important. So how was Titus to straighten out what was out of order? Well, the text simply says, set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. It was the command given by the Apostle Paul. He had apostolic authority, therefore he is speaking the very voice of God. And so, let me get this straight. The Apostle Paul, with this apostolic authority, tells Titus, that the most important thing he can do is appoint elders in every city. Does that sound like the modern church these days? I, I've been to many conferences. I've, I've had lunch with many pastors. And, and not once in all have I heard these pastors encourage these church plants to first establish the leadership. No, the most important factor in the modern church is to hire a worship leader. The music must be perfect. I think what we can learn here is that there are things that are more important. Because I thought, living in our culture, that it was the most important to not only have a worship leader, but to have a, a plurality of staff members. To have the biggest children's ministry. To get the most updated visuals. To have the, the laser show and the smoke screens and, and all of the hippest new things out there. Maybe even have the grandest buildings. Now listen to me very clearly. Don't misunderstand my sarcasm. Those persons are very vital in the health of a church. I don't know about you, but I have ears that like good music. 
And we're very grateful for Jerry and the worship team, the children's ministry, and all the other ministries in this church. But what we can learn here is that Paul understands what's most important and why he has commanded Titus to go into the cities and appoint elders. Because it's vital. I believe that elders are the key foundation to a successful church. When leaders go, so the church goes. If elders, pastors, overseers, bishops are the foundation for a healthy church, can I ask an honest question? Where have all the elders gone? I just did a history paper in my doctorate of ministry, and that was the very question. Where have all the elders gone? A historical uh, research on the history of eldership from the Old Testament into the New Testament, into the early church, into the modern church today. Why are there so many churches that are deacon-led, committee-led, congregational-led? Why is every church not an elder-led church? I mean, they had elders in the Old Testament, they had elders in the New Testament, and they had elders in the early church. So listen, here's a history lesson. Sadly enough, the church that developed in and around the 3rd and 4th century adopted a three-tiered form of church leadership. This elevation of a bishop to the sole authority over the elders became the prominent position. The elevation of bishop to sole authority over elders and deacons is the building block for which the church began to remove the plurality of elders and authority within the church. And in the end, it's this kind of thinking that bursts the idea that Ignatius believes when he said, you must all follow the bishop as Jesus Christ followed the Father. And follow the presbytery as you would follow the apostles. Respect the deacons as the commandment of God. And listen to what he says. Let no one do anything that has anything to do with the church without the bishop. Single man. So, so it, it, if there was one bishop and, and there was a plurality of elders, they couldn't do the Lord's table unless that one man was there. This one man show became the standard in those days, which was introduced by Ignatius and supported by Cyprian as a key contributor to this model of church government. The problem with this whole three-tiered structure is the fact that it was overlooked the earliest church, founded by the apostles, goes against others who historically governed by a plurality of elders, bishops, and overseers. Even in the Old Testament, one of the most important develops, developments in the maturity, the maturity of the hierarchical government in the Catholic Church was the elevation of the Bishop of Rome. So now what we have is control freaks wanting to establish a one-man rule 
Now they've established not only the bishops, but a four-tiered system where the Pope becomes the authority and the bishops are now under him and the plurality of the elders are now under that single bishop and then the deacons. You see, the one-man show wasn't enough. <laughs> so there seems to, to be a draw for what? More control. More power to, to be established. By now, one man above the men who were in charge. The problem this whole system is not built on the foundation of the Word of God. By which we have defined already the eldership in the New Testament. Plurality of elders. Equal in authority. Listen, I am pastor. I'm elder. I'm bishop. I'm overseer. Whichever term you choose to call me. But I have no more authority than Brian, David, Adam, or Jeff. We're equal in authority. That's the way it should be. One man can't make the decisions for the church. And so Paul begins with the command to Titus to put in order to appoint elders in every city. That was the job that Paul expected Titus to do. And I believe within the modern church, it should be the model that Paul even still today expects for healthy churches. So if Paul felt the role of leadership was so vital for the health of the church, then of course you would expect there to be some kind of criteria for these leaders. And so not only did Paul give the command, but secondly, Paul gives us the criteria for the selection of these elders. Now Paul has given us two reasons why he left Titus in Crete. And it was to put in order what had remained and, and the process by which he was to do that was to appoint elders, pastors, overseers who would then help correct some of the faulty doctrine, the bad thinking, the stinking thinking, and that they would create a leadership of plurality by which they could begin to have a healthy church. But this wasn't an easy process. This isn't just a, a kind of fill a spot kind of effort. No, it is a process that Paul felt necessary to go into great detail and therefore gives Titus the criteria by which he was to select these church leaders. Now, I have about an hour. There is absolutely no way that I can give you the exact details of all that goes into this. And so I'm going to give you an overview of these. And if you want to understand exactly where I stand and how the Scriptures stand, you'll have to read my dissertation. But nevertheless, God's standards for the qualifications of elders, listen, are extremely high. And this is the truth. One that many ignore in our day in order to fulfill a role in the church because there is a need. Paul understood its seriousness, its serious business, and so God directed Paul to present to Titus the very standard. And so he begins here in verse 6. He says, Namely, if any man is above reproach. Let's stop right there. This is a role that is designated for men. That is not popular in our culture. But in Titus chapter 3, in Titus chapter 1, it is very clear that it is in the masculine. 
This role is for men. So if any man is above reproach, and if there's any confusion, he clarifies the husband of one wife. If you can show me the, the husband of one wife who is a woman, I'll show you a woman who can be an elder, pastor, deacon, bishop. But if we're going to be honest with the biblical position, it's men. There is in Greek, masculine, feminine, and neuter. If, if he wanted it to be either male or female, he could have easily put it in the neuter form, but he didn't. When he said elder, it's in the masculine. And that's why when the translator translate, they say a man, a husband of one wife. So if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of indecent behavior or rebellion. It seems the first character quality of an elder is a man that is above reproach. This simply means a man who is unexcused. It's one whose character is free from any damaging moral or spiritual accusations. It's a man whose heart is pure before Almighty God. That was the correct answer on the survey, by the way. There is no man without sin. It's a man whose heart is pure before God because when a man's heart is pure before our Almighty God, he will have a heart that is pure before the people because his heart is pure before the Lord. And therefore, he will be a man without accusation. He is a man that is blameless. The Greek lexicon of the New Testament defines this as pertaining to one who cannot be accused of anything wrong. He is without accusation. The first two qualifications that Paul gives, listen, to Titus, have to deal with his being above reproach in his family. So the first qualification is a man that is blameless. And that means he is blameless in regards to being the husband of one wife. The Greek renders this literally a one-woman man. He is a man that is faithful to his wife. And so here are some examples of what this translation could possibly mean. Well, first, elders must not be polygamous. This is a legitimate proposition. There are many who hold this view. Wayne Grudem is one who wrote Systematic Theology, D.A. Carson. Great theological men. So it's a legitimate position. Contextually, it's one to be argued. The problem is, is polygamy wasn't extremely popular. And so it seems unreasonable, but it wasn't out of the question. It existed, just like any sin existed. It could be that an elder must be married. Could be that an elder be married only once. It could be elders must be maritally and sexually above reproach. So let me quickly tell you what I, I think it's not referring to. While there is a fairly good debate on the position that points to polygamy, I do not believe that's, that's what it's referring to. Because being married to only one spouse at that time applied to all believers in 1 Corinthians 7-2, not just elders. So it doesn't seem to be the case here. Neither do I think Paul is saying that one must be married. 
I mean, if we're going to take it literal, he must, the husband of one wife would some may argue that he must be married. Well, this seems a little off, seeing that Paul wasn't married. And it would seem to contradict his very teaching of 1 Corinthians 7 when he outlines the benefits of singleness, serving the Lord, and even encourages singleness for the purpose of more effective ministry. Doesn't seem right. I don't believe the text is referring to people who are divorced unequivocally. Because divorce has nothing to do with being a one-woman man. Now let me explain that. When you marry a woman, the Bible says you become one flesh. John Piper's view on this, I, I, I think, has the strongest biblical view. It's the, obviously not the most popular view. But John's Piper view of the one flesh relationship, listen, divorce does not end that. One flesh relationship. So divorce cannot be what's on the forefront of Paul's mind. Now, Paul could very well be considering an unbiblical divorce, but all the qualifications that are listed here and following deal more with something in the present, current qualities of the character of the man. Because if we look back on these character qualities in our lives, no one would be qualified. Because at some point in your life, you broke all of these. And therefore, it seems to be on the forefront of Paul's heart here is that these qualities are in the current situation for which these men find themselves. So I don't think that it is necessarily referring to the man who has been divorced, but it's possible. It's a position that's held. But I, I'm going to kind of track back on that in a minute. But let me continue. I don't think it's necessarily referring to the one who has remarried. Since the Scriptures do not prohibit remarriage if your wife dies, the Bible says you're free to remarry. So obviously Paul can't be considering that because there's an out. We see the approval again of remarriage of one spouse and actually encourages it in 1 Timothy 5.14. So th this is not the case always for such a remarried man to be disqualified. However, if a man is divorced outside the biblical, biblically approved situations and remarries again, there appears to be a legitimate question as to whether a man is disqualified or not. So Paul's phrase, here the husband of one wife, is determined in large by Paul's all-encompassing condition on the man being above reproach. Blameless. And this should be used to influence the decision as to a man's qualification for being an elder if the man is divorced, whether he is married or remarried or not. It was John MacArthur that pointed out the fact that just because a man has one wife and has never been divorced and re or remarried doesn't mean he's a qualified man. This is something to consider. 
The husband of one wife refers to a man's faithfulness to the, to the woman who is his wife and implies inner as well as outward purity. It's about how one conducts himself in marriage. Listen, a lustful husband, whether he or not, commits physical adultery, commits moral adultery, if his heart desires sexually for another woman other than his wife. And if this is the case, then he is not a one-woman man. So these are all realities to be considered. Listen, when his unfaithfulness becomes known, he is disqualified. Qualified leaders should be faithful to the one woman only, his wife. But not only is he a qualified elder to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, but secondly, they are expected to be having children who believe, not accused of indecent or behavior or rebellion. So the candidate's reputation as a, as a father comes under examination in regards to the behavior of his children. Now, I have seven. The odds are really against me. So don't think I take these qualifications lightly. This is what I do for a living. This is where my joy is. This is what my heart is. Here's a qualification that can make or break a potential elder based on his own children. The reality is, is being an elder pastor overseeing the church is much like being a leader in the family. If a man is not able to lead his own family well, then he is not qualified to lead the family of God. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. If the potential elder is going to help lead the people of God to Christ, if he's going to help lead the body of Christ to grow in obedience and to holiness, the testing ground is simply to examine the effectiveness of his efforts in, in with his own children. So what we see is a twofold qualification in the life of his children, specifically in their faith, in their personal conduct. What is in view here is, listen, not the occasional disobedience. Children are children. They will always be children. They will always make mistakes. What is in view here, and what Paul is pointing out, is that these children must not have a deep-seated rebellion against parental authority. Listen, while you see and understand this qualification for the role of elder, listen, Paul is not asking any more of the potential elder than he is of you. This is an expectation for all Christians. For all parents. All these qualifications that are put on elders should be the character of all Christians. Not just the elders who are in desiring leadership in the church and their children. And thus the elder becomes a role model to the body of Christ to follow under the example by which they lead. Now listen, I understand the elders are put in the glass house. And they should be. Because with this role comes high expectations. But please hear me out. Every single one of us should have the characteristic and the desire as believers and followers of Christ or at least work toward that kind of lifestyle. This kind of lifestyle should be the desire for every believer. And it encourages the younger people. Listen up, young people. Set some standards in your life. 
Set some standards. Because one day, young men, God could call you to be the leaders of the church. And unless you start now by setting the standards, you may be disqualified before you ever have the opportunity. So when somebody calls you to do something, listen, that doesn't dishonor, that does, that does not honor God, which in return does not honor your father nor your mother, then you ought not do it. Because by doing these very things that dishonor God, you become the stumbling block that could ultimately become the disqualifier for your father being in the role that God has called him to. Doesn't seem fair, does it? But I tell you what, makes you keep a tight grip on your kids, don't it? So here Paul has in mind being above reproach in regards to his marriage and raising of his children. Now your question is this. Is this children in the home or children out of the home? Well, children here in the Greek is technon. And it means an offspring of any age. The same Greek word that's used in verse 4, I think, when Paul calls Titus his beloved son. Same Greek word, technon. He's an adult. So if we're going to hold to the word and try to be as accurate as we can in our understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate here. It, what he's trying to communicate is if you have a child in or out of the home that rejects the gospel, that's a hater of the gospel, that is living in absolute disobedience, that is, a, that is running away from the faith, then you have just advocated your ability as elder. So we better be investing into our children. The two qualifications that Paul gives Titus have to do with the quality of the candidate's family relationships. The remainder of the criteria is, is more of a personal self-control quality. And Paul begins these next several qualifications by setting them out by giving us six negative character traits. What the elder should not be. And so he begins in verse 7 and 8. For the overseer must be Beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, righteous, holy, disciplined, having firmly, holding firmly to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. So here we see the usage of the word overseer, which we've already noted means elder, leader, pastor, they're used interchangeably. And so not only is the elder to be above reproach in his family, he is called to be above reproach in his personal life. He says, for the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward. This means that the candidate for elder must be a man above reproach, blameless as God's steward. He, he is accountable and responsible for what is entrusted to his care. Now, a steward is one who manages a household for another. 
While stewards in those days would have been slaves or free slaves, nevertheless, they were giving over charge to things within the household, things like finances. They would, for example, they would be over the crops and how they were being planted, the harvesting, the, the cultivating. And thus, the steward is a manager, he is an administrator, and he is a trustee of someone else's property, someone else's household, someone else's business. So here is the overseer's call to be a good, faithful steward. And that is an appropriate description for an elder, since the local church is called the household of God. 1 Timothy 3.15 he is to be blameless in how he stewards God's stuff. So one of the things that we might do if somebody were to pursue eldership in the church, we may call their business. And we may ask, what kind of employee is steward? Is he faithful? Is he a good steward? Is he, is he wasteful? Is he Right? Because we need to be good stewards. Paul continues, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed. I think the most simple definition of a self-willed man is a man who only wants his way. He's prideful, he's stubborn, he's arrogant, he's inconsiderate of others, their opinions, their feelings, their desires. Listen, because an elder's position is a position of plurality, Meaning, he is not the man in charge. He is one of the men's in charge. If he is a self-willed man, he is simply not a team player. Because, listen, we have five elders, and not all the time do we agree 100% on things. And if somebody is self-willed, how is that going to work? You'll be just bumping heads the whole time. So we learn to submit to one another. And it works out great. Because I think that's God's design. It can't be self-willed. So again, if this is a lifestyle consistent of behavior that isn't an event that happens here or there, there's repentance, there's growth, there's a process of sanctification. But nevertheless, if this is the mark of his lifestyle, he is not a qualified man. Not only should that man be qualified and above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, he says he must also not be quick-tempered. Now here, quick-tempered does not refer to the occasional flare-up. As bad as those are and as destructive as they can be, but what Paul is referring to is someone who has a short fuse. He is easily provoked. So why? Well, listen to what James says in James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. He says, you know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, not everyone must be quick. Now everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. And so the warning here is that he be a man that is not quick tempered. Because if he is, he is quick to bring the unrighteousness of God on the church. Disdain on the church. And again, these are character qualities for every Christian, not just the elders, or potential elders. So if you're here this morning and say, well, I'm, I'm a woman, or I'm a man that doesn't have a desire for eldership, these should still be our realities as Christians. We can learn 
from what Paul is saying is a godly example for, for the anatomy of a healthy church. I mean, could you imagine if the pastors were all not quick-tempered and everybody else in the congregation was? It'd be a nightmare. Right? So we have to make sure that we apply these to ourselves, not just look at them through the lens of what someone must be in order to have the role of elder. There are moments and times of leadership and roles that you have to contain within your desire to outburst with anger. Seems to be connected with the idea here where in James it says, be slow to speak and slow to anger. Sometimes I've learned in my own life just to shut up. Because nothing I'm about to say that comes out is of any benefit to anybody. Right? So self-controlled. So because let me tell you, there are people who know how to push your buttons. But a man's anger does not bring about righteousness to God, even if he's right. So the man should not be a quick-tempered man. He also must not be overindulging in wine. So wine, most commonly drunk in Paul's day, as well as the Old Testament, was either non-alcoholic or had a very low alcohol content. Fermented juice was mixed with water as much as eight or ten parts of water to one part wine to lessen the power of its intoxicant. It was designed for what purpose? To help the stomach in its ailments. Here Paul is referring to a man that is not addicted to wine. Maybe he would have a few extra glasses, maybe a bunch of extra glasses to try to get a buzz. Nevertheless, a man is not to be misusing or becoming a drunk on wine. Now, we don't even have a need for it in our day to mix wine and water together because, well, we have Pepto-Bismol and we have clean water, at least at this point. But if you read the reports from you know, the times of the Civil War and things where they drink water and they got sick and all these other things, it may have been pretty important. But we live in America. And while it might be poisoned with something else, nevertheless, the point is, is that this man must not be overindulging in wine. So Paul understands giving them the okay to drink a little wine and water mixed to help their stomachs, but it should never be that the leader, elder, pastor is addicted to wine. And I will even submit that you have no business drinking strong drink that is liquor, that is absolutely fermented, that is designed to make you drunk. Because in the Old Testament, there is a passage of Scripture, I can't refer to where it is exactly, but there was a wine that caused them to be drunk. This was the unfermented, not the mixing of water and wine. Now, we as a standard at Family Bible Fellowship expect all of our elders to abstain from drinking alcohol altogether. The husbands and the wives. That's our standard. And now they may come one day and go, you know what? I, I think I want to start drinking a little bit. That's fine. They just have to step down from the role of elder. We have a standard here. Because we want to be an example. We don't want our children to think it's okay to go get crunk on Friday night. Because I can promise you there'll be many who was out drunken Friday night at the club partying with the devil, drinking it up, and now they're in church on Sunday and they're all, oh, holy Jesus, I love you. 
they live like Hades six days a week and they come on Sunday with their suit and their tie and they look all religious. It's nauseating. So the reality is, is a man who is qualified for eldership is not to be drunk with wine. You must also not be a bully. He should be gentle. Gentle doesn't mean you allow people to walk all over you, but rather handles the circumstances in a way that honors the other people. He, he is not a man who is pugnacious. Pugnacious can refer to a, a verbal as, as, as well as physical fighting and quarreling. The text says that that's not, it should not be a bully. But the leader or the candidate for eldership should also be a man not greedy for money. Listen, this man that is without honesty or integrity seeks wealth and financial prosperity at any cost. Listen, the ministry is not about money. I, I get a set paycheck in this church. If you give a million dollars a day, it doesn't go into my pocket. It goes to the Lord's work. If you give online, it doesn't go into my pocket. It goes into the church for the glory of God. Now, the church may decide to give me a, a little extra money, but nevertheless, we don't do this job for what we make. You couldn't pay me enough to do this job if I was just working by the hour. I, it's, it's 24 hours, seven days a week. That doesn't mean I don't take time off, but I can tell you, if you know me long enough, I'm always available. And I think that's a reality. Doesn't mean the preacher is not worthy of his wage. Doesn't mean the preacher is not worthy of double honor financially. But if it is, it is a job that is not done with the intention of greed. So therefore, the man who is all about money and about greed should not be a man who is considered for the candidacy. Because I can tell you, sometimes it takes sacrifice for this job. For the role of elder, pastor, overseer. When we're sitting in, these, in this office at midnight, beating our heads against the wall to try to figure out things, to come to an agreement on things, there's no money involved in that. That's, that, that's extra. So a man must not be agreed for money. He is a giver. He is willing to help people in need. These are the things elders should be. Next, we find in verse 8, he lists the six positive traits. This is what the elders should be. Verses 8 and 9. He says here in verse 8, But be hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, righteous, holy, disciplined, holding firmly to the faith for word which is in accordance with his teaching. These should be the qualities of the candidate for eldership. He should be a man who is welcoming. He is devoted to the welfare of others. Now, the, the, the Greek word hospitable simply means this, friendly to strangers or guests. He should be a man who is loving to those who come into this church Visiting. He should be loving to those strangers who need help. He should be loving to those guests that are part of what's happening here at Family Bible Fellowship. And I would go as far to say that he is hospitable even to the members of this church. And his wife, from day one, we've tried to set out as uh, me and my wife to date every single one in the church, to spend time with you, to get to know you. 
to fellowship with you, to hear your issues. I mean, we've had date nights where we sit in a driveway till one o'clock in the morning. So, so it is a viable reality that an elder must be hospitable. But he also be, uh, he should be a man who is loving what is good, the text says. Scripture says as believers, as Christians in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if, any, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Must be hospitable and loving what is good. But he also must be self-controlled. See, a lot of these fall back onto this reality is their self-control. Because that is, a, that is a mark of a spirit-filled man. Self-control includes the candidate for eldership have, a, have control of his mind, of his emotions, his words, and his deeds. He must keep a check on that. The text says that he must be a man that is righteous, holy, and disciplined. Listen, the reality is this. <clears throat> Unless the person that is the candidate for eldership is a believer and follower of Christ, listen, it will be absolutely impossible for him to fulfill these roles. He must be a man of God. He must be a born again from above. He must have received the righteousness of Christ. And that lifestyle should permeate in him and through him. Because it's only through the indwelling of the Spirit of God at conversion, through Christ can you be righteous. Can God deem you justified, declared right before Almighty God? You must be men who live holy lives. For which the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 14, without it no one will even see heaven. He must be disciplined in his life. So the reality is, is the final criterion is that he is a man, verse 9, holding firmly to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. It's in the present tense. He, he, he's holding firmly to the faithful word. Not, not once held. He, he, he once was a good man, but now, well, you know, he used to be. No, he is holding firm, firm to the faithful word. He is known as a godly man. He is known as a man of the word. He's known right now in the moment for holding firm to the faith. He's a man after the word of God, which is in accordance with the teachings of the word of God. Listen, the reality is he must be a faithful minister of the gospel. God doesn't call the equip, he equips the called. Eldership is a position to be desired. Only God can give that desire. Now you can read 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can see the qualifications there. And that other pastoral epistle. But nevertheless, you must be a man willing to share the hope of Christ, the gospel, and be faithful to the study, to the proclamation of the word of God. Doesn't mean he is to know everything. But he is growing and he is faithful in his personal sanctification in relation to the Word of God. The Apostle repetitively stressed the serious significance of elders, overseers, and carefully and unwaveringly 
He must be a man preaching, teaching, and guarding God's truth. So we've seen the command. We've seen the criteria. And lastly, I want you to see the cause. Listen, the cause of faithful men who work hard at meeting these qualifications, submitting to these qualifications, and being faithful to personal sanctification in regards to these criteria and the word. The cause that comes from men who have given their lives to the word of God to lead the family of God, the household of God. The cause is spelled out here in the latter part of verse 9. And so he says, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. The cause of the man that is faithful to the word of God, to the study of God, to the consistent investment of the word of God, will be that candidate for elder. It will be a man that will be able to both exhort and to refute. The word here, exhort, parakalao, means to urge, it means to beseech, it means to encourage. It literally means to call alongside. He must be a man that is able to exhort, to encourage, to give strength, to give help. The candidate for eldership must be a man who is in love with the Word of God so that he can encourage the body of Christ in sound doctrine. And let me tell you that as a student of the Word of God, this is a lifelong process by which you will grow in your understanding of the Word of God. And the more you grow in your understanding of the Word of God, the more you will be in to encourage other brothers and sisters in Christ. So when you can properly understand the Word of God, you can properly refute those who contradict sound doctrine. Now listen, I'm not talking about arguing and de debating over non-essential doctrines in the church. There are legitimate disagreements. Uh, if you don't believe me, just look up how many views there are on what it is to be a one-woman man. I mean, there's a lot of ink spilled on that. And while I may not agree with Wayne Grudem, I can tell you, he's a godly brother in Christ. The question is, are we able to refute and to stand and to contradict that those that contradict sound doctrine? Because that is the cause of a man who is faithful to the Word of God. And so here are the qualifications for healthy leaders who will indeed be the gatekeepers to the church to the household of God. And if we are going to be a healthy church, then we have to be a church that's elder-led. And the elder selection process are men who meet these qualifications. We need men who are able to lead the body of Christ well. We need faithful men. Thus, we need young men to step up, to start growing up in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. So that you can take the mantle. So that we can pass the baton to you as faithful young men in Christ. So you may be discouraged this morning. Well, you know, I'm not qualified for anything. I had a rough life. Listen, elder is one role in the church. There are so many, so many things you can do for Christ. And shall I remind you, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So keep that in mind. Serve Christ and serve Him well for the glory of God. And begin to pray that God would give you wisdom. Begin today by walking in repentance and allow God's grace to begin to grow you spiritually so that one day you can indeed be a qualified leader in the church. That's our hope. That's our desire. We want to raise up godly leaders in the church because I might kill over tomorrow. You never know. So who are we discipling? Who are you discipling? You ought to be investing into someone or someone ought to be investing into you. Thank you for listening to our program today. We pray that you were blessed and trust that you will join us again as Pastor Stuart Guthrie preaches through his new series on the book of Titus. If you do not have a church home, Pastor Stuart Guthrie would like to personally invite you to join in person at Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch, South Carolina, or you can visit them on their website at familybiblefellowship.org. May God bless you this week as you walk with Him.